Um, turn to Mark. I'm ready. Okay, Mark chapter 1. Uh, and I will turn there as well. We will be covering more ground today than we did uh, last week. As you guys know, who have been here for a long time, we're going verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's what we do. Um, sometimes we only cover like two verses. Last week we covered three, I think. Um, was it three or two? Let's see. Um, no, it's just two verses. No, it was four. We did. We started in verse 12 last week. Yeah, today we'll be covering more because otherwise it would take us, you know, 300 years to get through the Bible. I think I did the math. And at two verses a week, once a week, it's about 300 years. So that's not, that's not okay. Um, but we're going to be in verse 16 today, starting in verse 16 of Mark chapter 1, going through verse 28. And studying that together. In verse 16, we'll read it and then, then pray for our study. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after them, went after him. Then they, <coughs> excuse me, that's probably not good to do in a microphone. Then they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Let's pray again. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you. I thank you for the great privilege of being able to teach it to your church. Uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be teaching today, and that we would be... Um, reverent towards your word, honoring your word, and that we would leave having learned things from your word that we didn't know before. Uh, we're, on, we're on a journey. This is progress, and I pray that progress would be made in all of us today, that we would come towards you, that we would follow after you, that we would learn about you and become like you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the text ends today in verse 28 with Jesus being famous. It ends with Jesus being famous. Now he had spent, Jesus at this point in time, had spent the first 30 years of his life not being famous. Uh, he started um, his ministry with the baptism, which we read about that in, in a couple weeks ago, which was a high point for sure. But following that, he spent 40 days in obscurity being tempted by the devil himself and hungry. Um, not famous. He's by himself in the desert. You don't get famous by doing that. Um, and so we see in, in our text today, we've reached a point in, in Mark chapter 1 where there's a, a turning point sort of uh, in Jesus' ministry um, because Jesus becomes well-known now. He's not just a nobody from Nazareth, okay? He's, he's famous. Um, 
And as we look at Christ's ministry today, at successful ministry, uh, we'll see that successful ministry is still the exaltation of Jesus. That's what successful ministry is. It's Jesus lifted high. And we see that done in Christ's life by both words and actions in this text. Uh, starting in, well, actually, before we get to verse 16, you can glance back at verse 14. Jesus had been preaching in Galilee. Okay, Galilee, it's a, it's a pretty big region. Uh, he had been telling people to repent and to believe in the gospel. And that message that he was preaching, it seems, was for anyone who could hear him. You know, for all within the sound of my voice, repent and believe in the gospel. Um, he will continue to preach in, in that way to, to masses, just to anyone. There will be, you know, thousands and thousands of people eventually will be following Jesus, hearing him. Uh, but now in verse 16, excuse me, he's going to, He's going to get personal. He's just going to kind of focus in and become personal. He's going to find some specific people to bring to himself. Not just, you know, scattering seed wherever. It's like, oh, someone might hear. He's going to go to specific people and say, I want you to follow me. And in verse 16, which is the start of our text, it says, And he walked by the Sea of Galilee and saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Um, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. Galilee was a good place to fish. That might have been the only thing it was good for. Um, there's, it's about the, the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake, but it's big enough. You can call it a Sea of Galilee. It's about 12, 12 or 13 miles long and nearly seven miles across. So it's, it's big. It's a big lake. Um, Josephus said at the time he was writing his histories that there were several species of fish in Galilee that were not found anywhere else in the world actually. And my wife said, well, that's how they could have fish for breakfast, because, like, we're not having trout for breakfast. I don't see a problem with that. But um, it's a big lake. There's lots of fish there. I have no spiritual application for that. I just thought it was interesting, so I'd share it. But Jesus goes to this lake. He's not there for the fish. He's there for the fishermen. Um, and so let's talk about these guys. Um, it says, uh, you know, Simon and Andrew, they were uh, casting their nets in the sea because they were fishermen. People are often quick to say, uh, that these were uneducated fishermen, like how Jesus went to uneducated fishermen, which is partly true. Um, they would have been able to read. They were literate. Most uh, ever, even you know, peasants were then. They were uh, would have attended synagogue and been um, educated in the scriptures. They had a synagogue in Capernaum that Jesus goes to in, in our text. We'll see later. So they're not you know idiots. They're not like, you know, it's like, well, I dropped out of, you know, the fourth grade. And that, that's not it. But they also, um, you know, they weren't uh, brain surgeons either. Scholars, professionally. People are also quick to say that these guys, Andrew and Peter and the other two fishermen, were poor. You know, Jesus went to these poor fishermen. Not, again, only partly true. You know, they weren't billionaires or anything, but they were successful in their businesses. Uh, James and John, we'll see the sons of Zebedee, they had servants working for them. They were the employers. Okay, they were running a business and had people working for them fishing. They hired people to fish. Like, eh, I don't know about that. Um, so, you know, they, they, were, they weren't serfs. They weren't slaves. They were successful businessmen. They weren't geniuses, but they weren't idiots. They weren't millionaires, but they weren't poor. They were average. They were middle class. Okay, they were the middle class. Maybe, you know, some of them might have had a degree from state college, um, but not, not an Ivy League school. But, you know, they had they had some education. Um, but it, 
it wasn't really about what they could or couldn't do, you know, because people want to make a big deal. It's like, oh, they were poor, so Jesus likes poor people better. Or it's like, no, they had servants, that means they were rich, and Jesus likes rich people better. It doesn't matter. Okay, Jesus is going to these people because of what he could do through them, regardless of their qualifications. He was going to make them become fishers of men. So Jesus is walking around this lake, this huge lake. He's fishing for fishermen. And uh, he went to the lake for people. He went to where they are. Verse six, we'll read verse 16 again and come into verse 17. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Okay, so he sees Peter and Andrew out from the shore. They're in their boat. They're throwing out a net. That's how they fish. And he, he sees them and just, you know, cups his hands in and he calls out to them. He says, follow me. Okay, Jesus is here to make disciples. And the first, the way he does that, what he says, the command in disciple making is to follow him. Um, I will notice, you know, later they're going to go to church. They're going to go to synagogue later, you know, which is kind of church. Um, but he does not go and make disciples by telling people, go to church. See ya. You know, that's, that's not disciple making. That's not what Jesus does. Uh, he didn't, they didn't need to go to synagogue to hear about Jesus. And we see an important truth about the incarnation here, about Jesus coming to earth, about God becoming man. Because uh, Jesus will say to you or has said to you, as he said to these men, follow me. That, that is a command for now, every day. Follow me, become like me, imitate me, uh, make sure you're behind me and not in front of me. You know, follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus says to them. But he only says that after Jesus had left where he was in heaven and come to them. Okay. Uh, he, he does say, follow me, leave where you are and come to me. But he, he's led by example in that. He's left where he was in heaven to earth, sought out these men and sa- said, now you leave where you are and follow me. Um. Jesus left heaven to become like it, us so that he could be close to us, so that we could come close to him. Jesus came to earth so that he could bring us to heaven. And here in our text, he's going to a lake. Okay, he's going to where, where people are so that the fishermen could do something better than fishing. Um, Jesus came to where the fishermen were. You know, we always talk about like, God meets you where you are. Yeah, that's true. He met the fishermen where they were, not so they could go fishing. Okay, not because he liked where they were necessarily. Jesus meets you where you are so that he can take you to where he is. That's why he meets you where you are. He meets these fishermen in their own world where they are comfortable on their own terms, but Jesus did not leave them there. He had no intention of leaving people where they are. Um, in, in evangelism, which we should all be involved in probably more than we are, I think we'd agree. In evangelism, people can get caught up in one of two extremes. Um, the first, you know, some people will, will never go out and meet people just never because, you know, the world is dangerous and it's full of sinners, you know, kind of the same reason I don't like swimming because you get wet, you know, it's just, that's part of the deal. Um, but people, you know, in trying to remain unspotted from the world, which is a good thing and pure and holy that those are good things. I'm not, you know, bashing that, but they separate, separate themselves, not only from participating in sin, but even from company with the sinners that Christ died for. Okay, these people would have never been walking around the Sea of Galilee in the first place because fishermen are rough people and there's Gentiles up there and stuff like that. Okay, 
their method of evangelism is basically, well, I hope they go to church. I might tell them they need to go to church, but I, I just hope they go to church because apparently that's where people get saved. Interestingly enough, that's the last place on earth a lost sinner is going to be interested in going to, probably. Uh, the other extreme, of course, would be for a person to be completely immersed in the world where, you know, with the, the sinners, the sinners that Christ died for that we are a part of. Uh, but to the extent that they have disregarded James chapter 4, verse 4, which says friendship with the world is enmity with God. Okay? And, yeah, sure, you know, there's people, they'll go out and be friends with the lost, and they're saying, like, I'm, I'm engaging the culture. That, that's fine. But they make no move to rescue the same people from the hell that they're heading towards. Okay? These are two opposite ends of a, of a very bad spectrum. Okay? And Jesus does neither. You will find balance with Christ. As we look at the life of Christ in Mark, you will find balance, not moderation. That's not balance. I'm not saying he's moderate in that he doesn't do anything in the extreme. He is balanced in that he is extreme in both directions. Okay? Uh, he's extreme in two directions. He goes to the worst sinners and then brings them to the holiest God. Okay? So Jesus goes to where people are. That's true. Jesus meets you where you are. And we, we are to go out into the world and make disciples. Okay, he seeks out the fishermen, but he calls them away from their fishing. Jesus hangs out with some sketchy people. We're going to see he's got friends who are um, tax collectors, you know, addicts, prostitutes, those kinds of people. All, those, those are an IRS employees. Those are the people that Jesus hangs Tax collectors. It's in the Bible. I'm just saying. Um, Jesus hangs out with some sketchy people. But he calls, you know, but he doesn't do that because he likes them the way they are. He's just like, oh, these are my kind of people. I, I like, you know, hanging out with them because I don't like going to church. That's not his thing. He, he hangs out with those kinds of people because he wants to make them into who he is. He doesn't like people the way they are. It's, he wants to, he likes him the way he is and he wants you to be like him. That's the way that, that works. Jesus is going to make Peter and Andrew and does something better than they are when he meets them. They're fishermen. He's going to make them fishers of men. Okay, right now they're Peter and Andrew. He's going to make them into little Christs, into Christians. That's what Christian means, little Christ. This is not the first time Andrew and Peter had heard or even spoken with Christ. Uh, he's not a stranger to these guys, and we missed that in Mark, so I'm going to throw in some information from the other Gospels here. It's interesting to think about. It would be really interesting to hear all of this from Andrew's perspective uh, because Andrew had already acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. Back at Christ's baptism, when Christ was baptized in the Jordan River with John the Baptist, Andrew was there and he said, I found the Christ. We get this from John chapter 1. You can look it up. In John 1, 35, it says, John the Baptist... Uh, was with two of his disciples. John had disciples too. And he sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples are like, well, then why are we hanging out with you? So they go and they go follow Jesus. One of those disciples, uh, John chapter 1 verse 40 says, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he went and followed Jesus for a little bit. Uh, it doesn't actually say he followed him. But John 1 verse 41, it says that he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So Andrew has been a disciple of John's and has told his brother Peter about Jesus. But after that, Jesus went into the wilderness, right? Jesus went straight into the wilderness after his, after his baptism for 40 days. No one followed him there. He's back in Galilee at this point, preaching the gospel. He's calling men to himself. And the first people he calls on an individual basis are Andrew and Peter. 
uh, who he had met before, interestingly enough. And so one of these men, at least, we can't say about Peter, uh, but Andrew, at least, had already acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, okay? Was the, the Jewish Messiah, the, the king, okay? But it seems that that wasn't enough for Jesus. Jesus did not leave Andrew, Andrew in a place of just accepting Jesus. Jesus called for greater allegiance than that. You could say that Andrew had accepted Christ at this point, okay? He said, yeah, I'm Jesus, Messiah, great. He had accepted him, that's not enough. It's ne- it never is. In scripture, Jesus never calls people to accept him. Okay. He never says, I hope someone picks me for their team. I'm always the last kid picked. Okay. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says something else. He says, follow me. And it's interesting. It's an interesting thing. Um, I mean, I'm not against the word accept. I'm not, you know, I don't want to like cross that out of your dictionaries or something. But it is interesting that usually, you know, we in church, we call people, we're like, you just need to accept Jesus. And it's not necessarily a biblical phrase we use. Uh, We're called to follow Jesus. That's what we're called to. Um, Andrew's statement in John chapter 1 of the, oh, I found the Messiah. That does not assure us that Andrew was what we would call a Christian even. He was a hopeful Jew, but the Jews had a very um, kind of uh, incorrect, incomplete, I should say, view of the Messiah. They didn't see him as a suffering servant, only as a conquering king. And he had only, he'd even told his family at this point that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had not begun to follow Jesus. And following Jesus is infinitely better than just liking him, just being a fan. Okay. Do you believe in God? So What? Even the demons believe and tremble. James 2 verse 19. Are you a follower of Jesus? Now that cannot be said of the demons. Are you a follower of Jesus? Can that be said of you? In saying, follow me, Jesus says, follow me to these guys. Jesus is giving us a good definition of working Christianity, of what Christianity ought to be. When the rich young ruler, later you guys know that story, he came to Jesus and he asked uh, what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And they kind of, you know, banter back and forth a little bit. And then Jesus says, sell all you have and follow me. Now, he doesn't tell everyone to sell all they have. He doesn't tell the disciples that. And it's a good thing, actually, because Peter's boat's going to come in really handy later on for a preaching platform, you know. So it's like that, that's not a universal thing. But he does tell both disciples, rich young ruler, follow me. Do you want to have eternal life? Follow me. Everyone who would be a Christian will follow this command. Follow Jesus. And you can be confident that Jesus has called you to follow him. Mark chapter 8. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself because it's in the book we're studying, but we'll hit it again, you know, in a year. Uh, Mark 8, Mark eight, verse 34. Jesus says, whoever desires to come after me, whoever, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. That's, that's what it is. You want to follow Jesus? Then do it. Get up and follow Jesus. Okay, that's what he calls these men to. They had already known him. They'd already, uh, at least Andrew had said, you're the Messiah. Uh, but they were not disciples yet. They were not following Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me. Come on, let's go. I'm going to show you something cool. And it's a different kind of relationship. A different kind of teacher to student relationship is established here. Jesus, we'll see, he's, he's teaching in synagogues. He is a, a rabbi. He is a teacher. Um, and this is a different way of a teacher picking disciples. In that culture, 
uh, a Jewish teacher, well, as a, a student, rather, would have to beg for a place at the feet of a good teacher. Okay, in the synagogue or the Sanhedrin, not the Sanhedrin, but, you know, in Jerusalem at the temple or whatever. You know, you, if you wanted to be a disciple of a teacher, you had to get your application in uh, before you know how to read as a little kid, you know, and then it would be on his desk for a long time. And then a teacher would pick his pupils, his disciples. That's really the same thing, you know, students, disciples. Um, and then, you know, they'd, you'd be really happy that you got in under the good teacher and it'd usually be little kids and would start. Jesus is a rabbi and he's going to pick his students, which is, is backwards. Jesus turns the tables. He seeks out uh, full-grown men who already have, you know, jobs and everything. And he says, you come and be my student. We're going to learn your ABCs all over again. In America, it's kind of interesting because we do both. You know, when you're in high school, uh, you get a ton of junk mail from colleges like all over saying, let us be your teachers, let us be your teachers. And then uh, to get in, you still have to beg and plead and write essays and go into debt to get in. So it's like, hey, you ask me, you know, I should just be able to walk in. You asked me to come to your school. But Jesus calls his students to himself. Um, and in this, we see a switch from the normal to the heavenly. Instead of Jesus waiting in a synagogue for people to come to him or just saying, well, just Go to church and you'll figure me out. Jesus went out and called people to him. He didn't say, if you can get here, I can help you. If you can, you know, come find me. He went out to people and called men to himself to follow him. And he's still doing it. Uh, he's not calling these guys as the 12 yet. You know, we know that the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, what, whatever, they change from one to the other. That won't actually happen until chapter 3, after he's got lots of disciples and he kind of narrows it down and picks 12 special ones. Um, and these guys are going to be part of that 12. Um, but at this point, they're just, they're just followers. They're just his first followers, his disciples. They're not apostles yet. You'll remember from our studies in Timothy and Titus that an apostle is a sent one. They haven't been sent anywhere. That won't happen until, you know, chapter six. And then really in chapter 16, Jesus sends them on with the great commission. They're simply called to follow Jesus. That's what they're called to do. That's it. And that progression from follower to sent one, which will become apostles later on, that's necessary. Okay, you'll never be sent on any mission for Jesus unless you're following him, until you're following him. You'll never do anything for Jesus if you're not walking behind him, following Jesus. Then, Otherwise, you're just doing your own thing, really. Probably wasting your time, you should quit. Um, following Jesus is always the first step, and it's a step that you never get past. Uh, you might say there is no second step. It's just following Jesus. Even later in, in these men's life, Peter and Andrew, of course, they would be you know, very influential in the early church. Peter, he's kind of a big deal. Um, you know, they, even when they would be busy with ministry, writing the Bible, you know, and leading churches, they're still, they haven't stopped following Jesus. They're still just following Jesus. That is what you are called to do. If anything, if nothing else, we are called to follow Jesus. And this is for anyone and everyone, no matter where you are in the progression of the Christian life, whether you're a returned prodigal or, you know, a new convert, a faithful Christian, you know, veteran, uh, this thing we must do individually, collectively, we must follow Jesus. We need to be making sure constantly that he's in the lead, that he's in front and that you are close behind him. That's what we're called to do. Jesus tells these men, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. 
Um, that word become, Mark includes it. The other Gospels don't. If you care about that, well, you're welcome. I just gave you something interesting. Uh, it says, I will make you become fishers of men. That's stressing future progress. Okay, it's not like Jesus pulled Peter out of the boat and then Peter was the super saint. You know, we know that's not true. Jesus said, follow me and I'm going to work on you. That's what he says. I'm going to make you become something that you're not. And he says the same thing to us. What we become depends on us following Jesus. As we follow Jesus, he changes us. He makes us become what we're not yet. And you can be confident of this. When you follow Jesus, he will change you. He gave these guys a new career, really. I mean, they, they quit fishing for a while. Um, following someone implies progress. You can't follow standing still. That's not following. That's the most boring game of follow the leader ever. You just stand there. Okay, so you don't, you don't expect, you shouldn't expect, if you are following Jesus, if you're following anything, you should not expect to be the same person in a year that you are today. Not if you're following Jesus. There will be progress because he's moving. I know that Jesus is on the move. And as we follow him, we will progress and, and follow his lead and we'll move. You won't be the same person. He will change you. He's promising Andrew and Peter that he will change them. I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is the original fisher. Okay, fisher man, fisher of man. Um, he draws men to himself. He's doing it here in our passage, okay, with Andrew and Peter. And he's about to do it with James and John coming up. Um, and after that, he's going to go fishing in the synagogue. He's going to go to the synagogue and, and preach there. And he's drawing men to himself. That's what he's doing. So he's telling his disciples to imitate him. He says, I'm going to make you a fisher of, fisher of men. You're going to draw people in. And that's what Jesus is doing already. He's saying, right now, you fish for fish, follow me, and I will change you. And this goes back to what was just said. Jesus comes to you where you are and then brings you to himself. He calls you as you are, whatever you are right now, today, that's fine. Start following Jesus. But he calls you as you are and then makes you into what he is. Uh, if you follow him, you're going to end up in a place that's different from where you are now. If you follow him, you're not going to be the same person you are now. If you're really attached to who you are now, let it go, okay? Follow Jesus instead. He's going to make you into something else. He's going to do the same thing with these brothers, James and John. He's got two sets of brothers. When he had gone a little further, this is verse 19. Um, we'll do 18, just so you don't know what happened with Andrew and Peter. You know, They immediately left their nets and followed him. That's good. When Jesus says follow, you, you do it. Verse 19, when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. There you see the hired servants and stuff. Now, these guys are interesting. James and John, okay? They, along with Peter, um, would become the closest of uh, Christ's disciples, he had kind of an inner circle, even in the inner circle of the 12. But these guys got like kind of VIP passes to, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration and stuff like that. Um, James, they're, they're brothers. James is older. John is younger. James would be the first of the 12 disciples to be uh, martyred in Acts 12, verse, verse 2. He got his head chopped off. Uh, John is probably the youngest disciple. Um, he's maybe 20 or even younger at this point, at the, at the beginning. Uh, some people estimate he's even, you know, as young as 17. Um, I don't know how they can figure that. Well, they figure it because 
the gospel of John was written last and John was like 90 or so. And then you can track it back from there. But he's, he's a young guy. John would uh, end up writing the gospel of John as well as three short letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation. Uh, John wrote more of the New Testament books than anyone but Paul, and he's a distant second. He's not even a close second because Paul just wrote a lot. Um, James and John were probably related to Jesus, actually. If you compare the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion and the resurrection, Matthew 27 Verse 56 says that the mother of Zebedee's sons was there at the crucifixion with Mary. Okay? And with a couple Marys, actually. Um, and then in John 19, it says that Mary's sister was there with the other Mary. And you, you match those up, and it, it seems probable that that was the same woman. The mother of Zebedee's sons was Mary's sister, which would make James and John cousins of Jesus. Seems likely, actually. Um, and we see here that they had a family fishing business. They're fishing with their dad and servants. That's a big deal. This means their family, James and John, were probably a, a step above Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Okay, they had servants. Um, also, they're uh, mending their nets while Simon and Andrew were still fishing. So, they're, I mean, they're, they're done with the day. You know, they're catching more fish than Simon. They're better at fishing, really. They have better lures. Um, but they're, they're probably wealthier than most, better off than most. We read in John chapter 18, verse 15, that the high priest in Jerusalem knew John, knew the youngest boy. And that, so, you know, he's kind of an important person. It seems like they were a well-to-do, respectable family. They may, maybe even had some, you know, prestige because the high priest doesn't know everybody. Um, but when Jesus calls them, they leave that life and follow him instead. They were wealthy, influential perhaps, but Jesus did not call people because their qualifications. In fact, he often calls people away from their qualifications. And he says, oh, nice qualifications. I'm never going to use those. I'm going to use my Holy Spirit instead. Here, try this. It works. And uh, Jesus calls these guys. He called them not because of family relations or that they could fish or their money or their lack of money or anything. He called them because he loved them and he wanted to love others through them, which he was going to do. So now Jesus has four guys with him, okay? He had Simon, Peter, and uh, Andrew, and then James and John. He's got four guys. These are his full-time disciples. They've left their jobs to follow Jesus pretty much. They fish, you know, for fun because you can never get a fisherman to stop fishing. Um, but the first thing uh, Mark records them as doing is going to church, <laughs> actually. They're following Jesus and then they go to synagogue and listen to Jesus teach. The first part of following Jesus for these men was simply to watch Jesus do what he does and listen to Jesus say what he says. Um, Jesus is going to change the way they do synagogue. Okay, They had a way of doing things. Jesus' way is different. He's going to prove his authority in this next passage over the demonic realm. Okay, The disciples part in that. Just watch. Watch what Jesus can do. That's a really good place to start following Jesus too. Study him. Watch him. Follow him. See what he does. Jesus is going to be teaching in the synagogue, uh, of course, for the hearers, for everyone's benefit. But he's also probably doing it to show these guys what their ministry is going to be like that they've been called to. Because they've been called to be like Jesus, to be fishers of men. And he's like, okay, this is how I do it. Come watch me. So they're watching the teacher uh, as an example to be followed. Verse 21 says, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, the synagogue and taught. Uh, Capernaum is still Galilee. Galilee is kind of a region. This is a town on the lake, Capernaum. 
Um, the foundation of this synagogue in Capernaum is still there. You can go and see it. Uh, I'm sure I will someday. Peter's house was in Capernaum, probably. Uh, this would have been the synagogue that Simon and Andrew and James and John would have attended regularly, probably. This was their, their church, okay? And they're, I'm sure they're with Jesus now. He goes into Capernaum. He's teaching. Um, now he's teaching. He says he taught. And that's different than preaching. Jesus has been preaching up till this point. There is a difference. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I'll just point out the difference. Verse 15, you see he was preaching. He was declaring that the kingdom of God was near and commanding repentance. Um, preaching is declaring a truth uh, that usually demands a response. You could call that preaching. Teaching is explaining the scripture. This is what it means. This is what's going on in the text. Okay, hopefully we get kind of a mix of that. I'm trying to get some balance of preaching and teaching because Jesus did both, and I'd like to as well. Um, synagogues, though, they didn't have teachers the way we do. They didn't have uh, Rabbi Appreciation Month because they didn't have the same rabbi every week. Um, too bad for them. They had something called freedom of synagogue, okay, the freedom of the synagogue. And what that was, it, it, they would allow uh, other, anyone who's a rabbi, any teacher, you can just come on and, and teach. And this gave Jesus the opportunity to just walk into any synagogue and be like, I'm teaching. Be like, all right, go for it. So any rabbi could come in and teach. Paul took advantage of this several years down the road. Uh, he was a rabbi as well, and he would just walk into a synagogue, and there'd all be all these you know, loyal, orthodox Jews, and he's like, guess what? You killed Jesus, and he was God, and then they'd hit him really hard. And then he'd go to the next synagogue and do the same thing, and then they'd hit him. And that was Paul's life. But Jesus, he's, he's taking advantage of the, the freedom of the synagogue, and going in as a teacher would have been accepted. You know, he, he wasn't the pastor of the synagogue at Capernaum or anything like that. He's just going in, I'm going to teach today. But there was a real catch with this freedom, this freedom, I'll put it in quotation marks, because the freedom was that any rabbi could come and teach, but all teaching was, was repeating the teachings of a handful of other rabbis who had, you know, written down some stuff a while back. So they were, there was accepted things that you could teach, but they were probably things that everyone had heard before. And because everyone was quoting the same handful of guys, you had your commentaries, your Talmud, and that's what you'd teach from. That's it. And so everyone taught the same thing. Like there was a script. Like I could go to the next, you know, synagogue and be like, okay, what's, uh, what you teaching? Okay, I think I found the notes. I'm just going to read them to you. And that was, that was teaching. You know, that was their teaching. So Jesus shows up and changes things because that's what Jesus does. Verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. People were astonished. They were astonished because of his authority in his teaching. When the scribes taught, okay, scri uh, they didn't have authority. Scribes were people who knew books. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Love books. Okay? They, the scribes were the people that wrote down the copies of the scriptures and everything anyone important had to say about the scriptures. Uh, and as you probably know, the Jews had collected a massive collection of written material about the scriptures, commentaries, opinions, commandments of men, um, not really anything great. This is called the Talmud. When a scribe would take a passage and teach on it, they wouldn't explain it to their hearer. They wouldn't say, oh, this is what the passage means, as if they knew what the passage meant. They would read a passage and then say, this passage was interesting to an important person a long time ago. Let's see what they had to say about it. And then they would just read. And that's, that's it. They have no authority over that scripture. They went to what they thought the authorities were, 
you know, the rabbis from a long time ago, and they'd uh, they'd just read and read and read, and they'd keep reading. I use commentaries selectively. Um, I do use them. I use commentaries in, in doing my sermons and my Bible studies. Uh, it'd be, you know, it'd be kind of silly to think that, oh, God never spoke to those other men. You know, he has, and it's, it's helpful that I can glean from those things. Uh, but when a hundred percent of a sermon comes from a commentary, I, I hope you guys would notice and it probably wouldn't be very good. Um, preaching and teaching should come from a work of God in a person's life and not just the work done at a desk, though a desk is involved. Uh, the scribes knew what other people said about God. Jesus was God. So he shows up and he changes things. Jesus didn't retell other rabbis' stories. He didn't borrow authority to back up his points. He just said it like it is. And he said it with authority because he was the author. Itty. Get it there? Yeah. He is the author of scripture. Jesus wrote it. Jesus taught with authority because he had authority. He spoke the scriptures as its author rather than a student. And now this is something, you know, we can't imitate perfectly because I'm not the authority of scripture. I didn't write this stuff. Okay. He lets me use his book. That's what I say. People say, that was a good sermon. Well, he lets me use his book. It's easy. Uh, uh, there is something to be said for speaking the word of God with authority, with the authority of God, and not just with the knowledge of words being said. Okay. We are to speak the word of God. We're to speak truth in love. We're to preach the gospel in season, out of season. We should be able to preach with authority, the authority of the work God has done in our lives. Okay. With the authority of a changed life. That's how we should be able to, to preach the word. Jesus is, is preaching, teaching with authority because he was the authority. He's God. When you tell people about Jesus, uh, don't preach Adam from a commentary. <laughs> teach, tell them what you know, basically. Don't tell your friends who don't know Jesus what you heard someone else say about Jesus that you think might be a good idea to, to tell them. Talk about what you know of Jesus having spent time with him, okay? Jesus taught the scriptures with authority because in addition to being God himself, he was, as a man, in direct contact with the Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures, Okay? He was speaking the authority of the scriptures because he was connected with the God of the scriptures. Okay. You will be able to speak the word of God, speak the scriptures with authority when you are in contact with the spirit who inspired them. All right. When you, when you talk about Jesus, don't just use sound bites from me unless the Holy Spirit has put that in your heart. And you're like, this is what God's showing me about Jesus right now. Me and God know this because he showed me. If you're like, well then, I get most of my, you know, my Jesus information on Sundays. Well, that's a big problem because you're, you know, I teach for about 40 minutes a week. Okay. You've got six other days that you're wasting. The things you say about Jesus, the things you say about the scripture, as you speak to your friends, your family about Christ, uh, that should be coming from your time spent with him. And I think it was with Jesus. We'll see later in chapter one that Jesus got up really early and prayed. Um, and that gave him the authority to speak the word of God as he did. And the authority that we see Jesus have in the synagogue, both over the scriptures and over an unclean spirit, and that's coming up, uh, seems to be in direct contrast with what we saw back in thir you know, verse 13 in the first 
section of the uh, of the book, you know, we had talked about a submitted Jesus. We saw a humble Jesus, one who was baptized, you know, a baptism of repentance, which he had no need for. You know, we saw the Jesus who was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted and ministered to and fasting. And now we see a Jesus with authority. And to some, this may appear a reversal, but it is not. Okay? It's a progression. Jesus has authority here because he still is in, uh, he still is submitted to the Father and to the Spirit. Um, so we, ha- we have to see this here. Authority, the authority of Jesus follows submission. And authority as a rule follows submission. This is a hard lesson and we don't like it. Uh, but to be in submission to the Father, uh, to be kneeling before a master is the best place you can find yourself. And Jesus modeled that for us, not only in this area of his life, but in his life as a whole, in the incarnation and God becoming man. Okay, Ephesians 4 verse 10, it says that he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, right now, Jesus is exalted in heaven. That's who we sing to. That's who we praise. That's who we pray to. Okay, but that came after the humility and suffering he spent on earth. James 4 verse 10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The lifting up must follow the humility. And in Jesus's case, it does. Uh, he had submitted himself to God and had received authority. When you are submitted to God, you are pleasing to him and you are a blessing to those around you and you are a threat to the enemies of God. In verse 23 it says, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Um, this whole time Jesus was teaching, there was a demon in the room, uh, possessing the life, the body of this man. And you can see from what the demon says, it is threatened by Jesus, the servant of God who teaches with authority. The first thing, are you here to destroy me? To just destroy us? Okay, first of all, before we get into this, we do live in a, a spiritual realm. We have to realize that. We have to know that. And not all spirits are good. Okay, it's, it's kind of a new thing. It's not so new anymore, but, you know, it's a, this decade probably, I don't know. But people who aren't Christians, but, you know, have a semblance of a conscience, uh, or want to, you know, they, they don't say, well, I don't, I'm just nothing. You know, they don't say that anymore. I'm not an atheist, an agnostic. People don't even use those terms that much anymore. What they say is that they're spiritual. Are you a Christian? Well, no, but I am spiritual. Okay. That's pretty much saying that they're demonic. Okay. They might not be. I'm not saying everyone who uses that line is, but if they are spiritual, and they're not Christians, yeah, there's some bad spirits then, okay? Now, when, yeah, when you ask someone if they're a Christian and they say, no, no, but I'm very spiritual, uh, you could ask them, what spirit? <laughs> um, but remind yourself of Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't have enemies in human form, okay? We don't. They're not, they're not our, people aren't our, aren't our problem, as much anymore. Our battle is spiritual. In this instance, an evil spirit had taken control of a man's life. He allowed that to happen, I'm I'm sure. He was demon-possessed, okay, so much to the point where the demon is speaking through him. He doesn't even have control of his faculties anymore, and he was very spiritual. He was very spiritual. 
He had this spirit. He's spiritual. The demon in the man says something interesting. In addition to the plea to be left alone, saying, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? Like, get out of here. You know, you're dangerous. Uh, he says something interesting. He says, uh, Jesus is holy. You're like, okay, that's true, but you just said that. You know, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What a crazy thing for a demon to say, right? Or one thing, this proves to us that the 40 days that Jesus had being tempted by Satan in the desert, we know who won. <laughs> okay, uh, that didn't harm Jesus at all. He emerged from that still the Holy One of God. He was tempted yet without sin. Okay, he, he had secured his authority over the demonic realm. And this demon says who Jesus uh, says that Jesus is who he is. The Holy One of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Promised One. And again, the demons believe in God. Don't think that they don't. Okay? They believe and they tremble, which is exactly what we're seeing here. This demon believes exactly who Jesus is, and he is scared out of his imaginary spiritual socks. I don't know what he's, the demon's wearing. He's, well, he ends up being scared out of his person. Um, <laughs> yeah, he is. He pops them right out. Uh, but this is said, he says, this, you are the Holy One of God. This is not said in worship, okay? This is saying, you are the king of a very different kingdom than I am a part of, and I know that we're at war, and I know that you have authority to destroy me. Are you here to destroy me? I know you could. You're the Holy One of God. Is that what you're here for? You're going you're gonna to destroy me? I don't know how many demon-possessed people listen to my sermons on a weekly basis, uh, but just a tip, if you're out there, if you're going to pick a fight with Jesus... You can plan on losing, and that's for everyone else, too. Verse uh, 25, which we read, we'll read it again. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For the authority he commands even, for with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. Uh, four weeks into this series, and we get an exorcism. Like, don't you love the Bible? Church is fun. Um, I, don't, I don't think this happened every week in the synagogue. I don't think this was like the normal thing, you know, because everyone's surprised that it, it happened, you know. Um, so this is great on-the-job training for the four fishermen. You know, you've got Andrew and Peter and, and uh, James and John. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's go to synagogue. I'm going to show you. We're going to do it different this week. Oh, okay, going to do it different. They're like, yeah, that was different. He taught really well. Now he's casting out demons. This is really different than the way we did it last week, you know? Um, it's exorcism, and that, it's been Hollywoodized, you know, and emotionalized, too, by, you know, hyper-Pentecostals. Uh, here, there's no weird demon-casting-out ceremony or anything. Jesus just says, get out. Just get out of here. This is my house now. You're being evicted. Because he has authority. Jesus says, be silent. He often told demons to shut up. Shut up and get out. Now, what the demon was speaking was true, but Jesus didn't need a demon preaching for him. Okay? Jesus didn't need it. It's like, oh, that's true. Listen to the demon. You know, like, you're not going to say that. He didn't need any association with the demonic realm. Later on, the Pharisees would say, he casts out demons with the power of the chief of demons, you know? And Jesus gives him a line. That doesn't make any sense at all. And Jesus explains it with a line that Abraham Lincoln would later use. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And Jesus is making it clear here by telling the demon to shut up and get out that they are of two completely different houses. They're of two different houses. Jesus says, you don't need to talk about anything holy. You're not on my team. And at this moment in time, Israel is becoming Jesus's house. 
and the previous tenant is being evicted. He's saying, get out, keep your mouth shut. And again, the people are astonished. They saw it happen, and they, it's interesting what they say. They say, what new doctrine is this? People saw Jesus act with authority, and they ask, what new teaching is this? Doctrine and teaching, same thing, okay? What new belief system is this that has such power? They assume that there is a belief system because of the extraordinary action. Now, I made fun of St. Francis last week. Last week, I made fun of St. Francis of Assisi for saying, preach the gospel if necessary, use words, because he didn't know what preaching was, because it's using words. Um, that's impossible. And I talked about how giving a person a sandwich is not the same thing as preaching the gospel. It's just not. But good works, whether it's making a sandwich for someone or casting out a demon, can open the door for the gospel to be preached. People see action and they say, what doctrine is this? Uh, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, there are people, there's de not denominations, but, you know, little factions in the American church, I guess, that would try to pit doctrine against good works. Like, well, you care too much about doctrine, but we have a soup kitchen. And it's like, well, you just help people all the time, but you don't read your Bibles enough. And then these people kind of argue about stuff. And you're like, okay, this isn't an either or thing. You know, as a person, it's as if a person had to hold on to their belief system instead of being nice to people. Not true. When the people saw Jesus work, when they saw his works, they inquired into his doctrine. Okay, his teaching. Now, first, they had heard his teaching. They had heard his teaching and he taught with authority. They were astonished. And then they saw him wield that authority over the demonic realm. And they again noticed his authority, but asked to know more about the teaching. They wanted to know more. What new doctrine is this? Let's, let's hear more about the teaching now that we've seen it work. It's both and. It's actions and words. It's never one over the other. It's actions and words. Jesus taught, then he did stuff, and people are like, let's have more of that teaching. That's a good good, nice cycle there. Okay. Our job, if we're going to look like Jesus is to act in such a way that when the gospel is preached and it must be preached and we must preach it, when the gospel is preached, it will fall on curious ears because of the way we lived on, on astonished ears even. I will, will point out that Jesus, he's been preaching. You know, he was preaching back in verse 14, calling people to follow him in verse 17. He's teaching in verse 21. He's been teaching, teaching, teaching. People see him do something, and then they're like, let's hear this teaching. And it, it op gave an open door for Jesus to preach more, which he continues to do, of course. Um, we are to preach the gospel with words, but our lives should lead people to seek the truth of the gospel. And this action of Jesus did just that. Because of his teaching and because of his life, his fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. That's the last verse there. And immediately, that's the word Mark likes to use, immediately, his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. And I like it that Jesus is famous. I like that. I want to make Jesus famous. Uh, the disciples were called to be fishers of men after Jesus went fishing for them. And Jesus became a man like us to make us, bring us to himself, to make us like himself. Now we get to follow Jesus. Uh, how do we do that? By being fishers of men, by speaking the truths of scripture with authority of a changed life and live in such a way that it would make people say, I need to know what they believe. What doctrine is driving such a life? Let's go live that life, shall we? Let's pray. God, thank you for inviting us to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for being uh, our example, for doing everything 
for us beforehand and then just calling us to follow and sit at your feet and watch you do what you do. And we are seeing you move. And we know that you're moving and we want to be right behind you as we follow. Help us follow Jesus, please. What more can be said? What more can be asked? What greater calling could there be? Ask us to follow you again and again and teach us to follow you every day. We pray this for your glory and in faith and in your name. Amen. Amen.